0: Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I, the God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. The epistle is from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, the second chapter. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. And then the Gospel is from Luke chapter 20. You've probably noticed that all of these passages are kind of focusing, well, the most recent one focused on the second coming of Christ. The first one was a setup because the, the Old Testament lesson is actually being referenced here now in the Gospel reading, pointing to the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, and therefore uh, they're experiencing uh, the eternal presence of the Lord already. And Jesus makes this point in Luke 20. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And he asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the, one, for the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. I was uh, talking with a couple of the members after the service yesterday, and we were all reminiscing about how when we used to sing that song in Sunday school, we'd be marching around in the basements of our churches or something like that, just, you know, carrying banners, or whatever it might be. And it, it's, it, yeah, it's, uh, it brings back such wonderful, fond memories for so many of us and, because it's a wonderful song to sing. Unfortunately, I don't know if you know this or not, but many... Modern hymnals don't include that hymn anymore in their in their hymnal because of the fact that they deem it to be too controversial. You know that we're soldiers; uh, it's war; that's a bad thing. And also the soldiers, you know, of Christ that that always seems to think of the Crusades, which were against the Muslims and so on. And so yes, many of these uh, de- modern denominations or more liberal, progressive we call it uh, denominations are not including that anymore in their hymnal so thankfully we still have it in ours and we can sing it and rejoice in Christ our commander in chief so as I mentioned at the beginning uh, over the next number of weeks we'll be looking at a a number of different images that help us understand who we really are Uh, today so many people are struggling who am I and uh, they're looking for the answer in many of the wrong places and yet in the scriptures God tells us in many different ways who we are. He uses a number of different images. Last week it was the image of a saint, that we are, you know, saints of God because of the uh, blood that Christ shed for us. But today we're going to be focusing in on discovering our, in- our identity in Christ as being soldiers of Christ. So the text that I've kind of drawn from, it's a very common text, uh, when we think about being a soldier for Christ, is from Ephesians chapter 6, these verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is our text. During Operation Desert Storm, I actually was watching an interview on TV, and they were interviewing a number of American soldiers who said that they did not want to be involved in the Gulf War. When asked why they joined the U.S. Armed Forces if they were not prepared to fight, the responses were varied. Some said they never dreamed that they'd find themselves in war conditions because the USA had not been engaged in full-scale combat since Vietnam. Some said that they had joined the military because it was a way for them to get their college or university tuition paid for. Others enlisted because they thought it'd be a good way to learn a skill or a trade. And still others had enlisted so that they might see the world, so to speak to fight, to be involved in bombing and raiding the enemy, to face the possibility of having to kill someone or be killed, to get blood on one's uniform and to spend a night or two or three in a foxhole, only in one's worst nightmares. But now these servicemen and women were faced with real war conditions, and they were terrified. Some were so terrified that they were even considering going AWOL. Now, do you think similar sentiments are shared by some Christians in God's army? I mean, when people are enlisted in God's army, do they know what they're really signing up for? For decades, even centuries in the Western civilization, Christians have lived in relative peace. In fact, it wasn't so long ago that it was kind of fashionable to be enlisted in God's army. I mean, there are all kinds of benefits to it. And we still have some of those benefits today, like the charitable donation receipt that we get or not having to pay taxes for church properties and so on. But it wasn't so long ago that you would go to church in order to have some good business connections and you would have the respect of the community at large. I mean, God's people would polish up their boots, they'd put on their Sunday best and then march off to church with family and toe singing with gusto, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And where was the war? Oh, I know the internal struggle with our sinful nature is a war unto itself, and we dare never make light of that war. And certainly even in those days when there was such peace and calm, so to speak, in North America surrounding Christianity, the devil was still very much at work. But truth be told, it was only a few decades ago where Christians found that they were living in a time of relative peace where they were really part of the mainstream, if you will. Now, only a few decades later, the situation is changing. Warlike conditions are on the horizon, if not already among us. There's an attack on what we would call traditional Christian beliefs. I mean, Christians are considered naive if they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Christians are called bigots, because they're seemingly intolerant of people who have different opinions or beliefs or lifestyles. Christians are ridiculed because they believe in the six-day creation account. Christians are roasted because they adhere to a morality that's considered prude. Christians are accused of being hate-mongers because they confess Jesus Christ as the only way to know God, the only way to be saved. Christians are charged with being callous because they defend the rights of the unborn. Christians are called racists and promoters of imperialism because they evangelize new immigrants and they still send missionaries to other countries to convert others of other religions to the Christian faith. And, of course, we hear of stories from time to time where businesses run by Christians are being increasingly targeted by atheistic groups. And consequently, finding themselves in court facing lawsuits or possibly being picketed. This increase in tension that Christians are finding themselves in with the generally accepted worldview and the values and the morals and the beliefs and behaviors of the secular society at large are causing some soldiers in Jesus' army to reevaluate their, their role in his army. Quite frankly, some. Soldiers of Christ are getting cold feet. Some are retiring from active duty. Some are going AWOL. Some just kind of want to play soldier. Some are even jumping sides and joining the enemy camp. And to make matters worse, the enemy is infiltrating the Christian camp. The enemy within the church foments dissension within the ranks by promoting false doctrine, by suggesting that we compromise with the enemies of Christ, by sometimes raising up and causing little squirmishes right within the, within the battalion itself, if you will, causing dissension within the ranks. Yes, a battle rages against Christ's army, both outside and within the church. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that this battle is not just a temporal battle. It's not like we're just fighting governments, earthly governments, but we're fighting Satan. We're, we're fighting against spiritual principalities and powers. And yet, soldiers of Jesus Christ, well, that's who you are. That's who I am. That's the real you and me. Enlisted to serve when we were baptized, we're soldiers of God's armed forces. And this means that we need not fight the battle alone. I mean, can you imagine a soldier trying to defeat a whole army by him or herself? It's not likely, unless, of course, that soldier is God's own son. No, God has placed us in a battalion, if you will, so that we might march together, serve together, fight together, pray together. And we do this as we battle with the satanic forces that are at war against us. Now here's another question. What would normally happen? And I say normally because there's always the David and Goliath situation which exists. But what would happen if an untrained soldier took on on a skilled mercenary? The untrained soldier would likely be slaughtered very quickly, wouldn't he? As soldiers of Jesus Christ, we need to go through not only basic training... But as soldiers of Jesus Christ, we need to get ourselves in tip-top spiritual shape, to be trained in advanced fighting techniques, to study the strategies and the tactics of the enemy, to put on the armor of God and use the weapons that God gives to us for this spiritual battle. St. Paul commands, as we read on in Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore put on the full armor of God, So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. National Geographic published an article about the Alaskan bull moose. The males of this species battle for dominance during the fall breeding season, literally going head-to-head, antlers crunching together as they collide. And often the antlers, their only weapon, are broken and that ensures defeat. The heftiest moose with the largest and the strongest antlers is the one that triumphs. Therefore, the battle fought in the fall is really won during the summer months, when the moose eat continually. The moose that consumes the best diet, growing strong antlers and gaining the most weight will be the heavyweight in the fight. And those that have poor diets and eat less Sport weaker antlers and less bulk, and are almost certain to lose the battle. There's a lesson in this for us spiritual battles await us. Satan will choose a season to attack us. Will we be able to withstand the assault? Will we persevere and come out victorious? Or will we grow battle-weary and defeated? Much depends on what we do now. And so how do we prepare ourselves for the battle now? How do we make ourselves fit for combat? How do we ensure that we are fully clad in God's army? Well, St. Paul reminds us in the reading from Ephesians 6 of how to do that. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and use that as a sword to fend off Satan and all of his attacks. He tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, protective gear to protect us when Satan assaults us and attacks us with accusations that we're not worthy of God's love and forgiveness. But we're reminded as we put on that armor, that righteous righteous armor, so to speak, that in God's eyes we are holy and forgiven because of Christ. But yes, we get ready for the battle by studying the Word of God, by worshiping regularly, by having our daily devotions, by spending time in prayer, talking with with God, by attending seminars and clinics that provide us with specialized combat training so we can develop our skills and, and we can practice those skills so that when we are attacked, we're ready to fight back and to defend ourselves. Soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's the real you, and that's the real me. We're not just defenders. We're just not always on the defense, but we we even strategize ways to capture enemy territory. We go on the assault so that we can free prisoners of war. We storm the gates of hell. As soldiers of Christ, we set our heart on overcoming and defeating the enemy, even at a personal cost at times. The pastor shook the hand of a man on Easter Sunday and he said, You need to join the army of the Lord. And the man replied, Well, I'm already in the army, pastor. I'm in the army of the Lord, he said. And the pastor responded, Then why is it that I only see you on Easter and Christmas? And the man whispered back, I'm in the secret service. You know, it's tough to build an army if it's made up of those kind of secret service agents it's really hard to build up an army if we try to build it around weekend warriors or a soldiers you know weekend warriors are those who put on the uniform occasionally and play soldier Weakened warriors are those who don't want to pay the price or make the commitment to be fully devoted soldiers of Jesus Christ. Weakened warriors are those who leave the real battles to others to wage. And other soldiers, while well, they just go a wall. When the battle heats up, they run for the hills and they hide. No, we won't build much of a, much of an army around. AWOL and weekend soldiers and secret service soldiers, instead we need to build an army around people who are just say the word type of soldiers. We we need soldiers who are ready for battle all the time. We need soldiers who willingly submit to the commands of the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, so that when he says move, we move, and when he says charge, we charge, and when he says speak the word, we speak the word. Just say the word, soldiers, follow the commander-in-chief, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice required. Because, you see, we already know that the commander-in-chief has laid down his life for us and is leading the charge. It's not like he's back in the boonies directing the battle. No, he's right there with us. St. Paul, a loyal soldier of Jesus Christ, invites or writes to his brother-in-arms Timothy, he says, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's the real you, and that's the real me. And as soldiers of Jesus, we go to battle knowing that despite all the ongoing battles, and there will be ongoing battles and skirmishes. We know that the war is already won. Our commander-in-chief engaged the enemy in combat and won. The battle was hard fought. And like so many battles, there was collateral damage. Innocent infant boys were slaughtered by Herod as he tried to stop the king of the Jews from being born and from living. There were mind games as the enemy, Satan, tempted and tested Jesus in the wilderness. There were numerous skirmishes that Jesus had to deal with, sometime with the demonic and other times with the religious leaders of the day. There was a traitor even within Jesus' ranks, Judas. And Jesus' battalion all went AWOL as they ran for the hills when he was arrested. In Jesus' battle, there was interrogation, there was insults, there was intimidation, there was torture, it was bloody, and there was death. Our commander-in-chief died for us. He died so that our sins might be forgiven, so that the battle might be won. And our commander-in-chief cried out, It is finished. It is finished. But of course we also know that our commander-in-chief rose from the dead, conquering death once and for all. The enemy was truly vanquished. The writer to the Hebrews describes the battle this way. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity, so that by his death... He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Those of you who attended the funeral of Jack Orcutt know that I preached on the text of Revelation 19. It's a glorious vision of Jesus, the conquering warrior, the conquering commander-in-chief now riding on a white horse in a victory parade. Revelation 19 sh- shows Jesus, dressed in a, white, in, a, in a beautiful robe, now on a white horse, and being followed by white horses that are being ridden by the armies of heaven. And they're not going off to war. They're actually celebrating The victory for the war is over, the battle is won, and Jesus is leading the way. Yes, in that vision, we see that his robe is dipped in blood, his robe is dipped in his own blood, and it's also bloody because the enemy's blood was spilled too. But Jesus is that conquering king, and they cry out as they see him riding in victory formation they cry out, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, we have many battles that we fight, skirmishes with the devil. Some we will win, many we will lose. But through the commander-in-chief, we know all of our sins are forgiven. And we know that th- despite those battles going on, the reality is the war is over. The victory is won. The kingdom's ours forever. Soldiers of Christ, that's the real you, and that's the real me. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.